Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Welcome you. If you're just joining us, you're coming actually at a, at a neat time for our current series, Finding Faith in Rock and Roll. Tonight, we consider more of a mainstream pop hit from the early 90s, Losing My Religion by that Athens trio, R.E.M., or as people who are not in the know say, Rem. Actually, someone yelled that out at the five. They're like, Rem, okay. And their, po- and their popular song raises the question, if Christians were to actually lose their religion, would that necessarily be a bad thing? Let me show you what I mean. I received an email from a first-time guest who candidly shared where she's at with matters of uh, God and faith and some of the concerns that she has. She wrote this. She said, Dear Tim, I'm totally vibing with the current series, and I'm open to this whole Jesus thing because I'm spiritual. But I want to know, if I decided to follow Jesus, as you call it, would I have to become religious? Interesting kind of question that she asked and distinction she makes between being spiritual and religious. She, she considers herself spiritual, which seems to be a sort of, you know, standing for open-minded. I'm open to this whole Jesus thing because I'm spiritual. But she balked at the idea of becoming religious. She has a concern. If she, dedicate, if she decided to dedicate her life to following Jesus, which is the essence of the Christian faith, would she have to become religious, which sounds like an obstacle for her? Maybe she's run into some people who consider themselves religious, and it's been like running into a buzzsaw. <clears throat> The thought of becoming religious is clearly a concern to her, and it is for many people. In fact, let me ask you, what's the difference in your mind between religion and spirituality? What would you say? I mean, in the minds of most people, if you had to answer that question, what would you say? The distinction between the two, if someone said, well, I'm interested in Jesus, but tell me, I don't want to be religious. What's the difference between being religious and being spiritual? What would you say? In fact, actually, let's do that. I want you to take a 30 seconds and turn to the person next to you and answer the question as best you can, one or two words, what's the difference between religion and spirituality? 30 seconds. Okay, let's take a look. What'd you come up with? 
What were some of the words that came to mind? Just one word answers that came to mind when the word religion came up. You can shout them out. This is the... In- oh, okay. We got a live crowd tonight. I should always expect that from the five. Whoa. Legalistic. Go ahead. What else? I'm sorry? It sounded like Polish. Holy. Okay. Sorry. Holy. <laughs> what else? What, what it, okay, raise your hands. Come on now. In the back there, Steve. Action. Okay, what else? Confining. Confining. Okay, what else? Anyone else? Rules. Academic. Anyone else? Oh, there's a gasp from the audience. Outward manifestation. I'll just put OM since I can't spell manifestation, all right? I'm just going to leave it like that. Interesting, but not particularly, we're just stopping right there, not particularly positive words overall, are they? <laughs> um, you know, I recall in an episode of The Simpsons, uh, Homer asks his neighbor, Ned Flanders, who is the religious guy. He's very religious, he's his fundamentalist neighbor, and Homer asks where Flanders and his family went on vacation. Do you remember his response? Flanders said, he said, well, we went away to a Christian camp. We were learning how to be more judgmental. <laughs> and the question is, where is that camp, and why is it so well attended? <laughs> You know, conspicuously missing from this list is any mention of love for God or love, you know, for neighbors. Just like, oh, religious people just ooze compassion. Not in the minds of most folks. Well, how about spirituality? What words came to mind there that would define that for you? What would you, what would you put in here? Spirituality. Personal. Go ahead, call out. Relationship. Love. Love. Compassion. Kindness. Wow, we got a spiritual group here. This is good. You guys have already lost your religion. All right, we'll just, we'll just tap it right there. It's good. It's good. Take a look at it. Now, now, what about you? Would you consider yourself religious or would you consider yourself spiritual? Better yet, how would your friends answer that question? <laughs> the people who know and observe you. It's interesting because in the 21st century, there's little doubt that the average person on the street regards spirituality as being a good thing. Look at it. Love, compassion, kindness but being religious as something pretty negative. And that popular conception is pervasive throughout Western culture. Noted apologist Ravi Zacharias, he often lectures at Harvard University, and he said that he, if he titles his talk Religious Belief in America, only half of the lecture hall will be full. But if he titles that same talk Spirituality in the West, it's standing room only. Religion versus spirituality, there's a distinction in people's minds. And the question is, do you think it's warranted? I mean, there's no doubt that there's a street-level suspicion of people who consider themselves religious, and that presents an issue, at least for those of us who consider ourselves Christians. And one of the reasons that designation is met with skepticism, or kind of a roll of the eyes by many people. Now, I understand. In a crowd this size, we all come from different backgrounds. Maybe you grew up Protestant, like me. I went to church regularly as a kid, heard about Jesus in the Bible, did the whole flannel graph thing, memorized, you know, the ark, all that. But I quickly came to realize that going to church was very much also about appearance, how we dressed. I started with a clip-on tie when I was about six years old. How we spoke. You know, I started picking up around seven. I was like, you know, we have this special language. And here we use these and thous when we pray, right? And everybody who I saw on the street just a few minutes ago are now my brother or sister. Hey, what's going on, brother? How are you, brother Mike? God bless you. But then you go home and you say, man, brother Mike is a jerk, you know? You talk two different ways. And it was about how you behave, primarily a list of things you avoided. There was a ridiculous little saying they had in Sunday school. They had us memorize. It was, Christian boys don't smoke, drink, or chew, and they don't go with girls who do. <laughs> Sad, but true. This is, it's true. <laughs> uh, they had us memorize that. Can you imagine? 
Or you may have grown up Catholic, like my wife and many of our friends, or you went to Mass or a CCD, but somewhere along the line, you got used to the rituals, and it was just like going through the motions. That's what a lot of my Catholic friends say. And the words kind of seemed meaningless, or church became boring or irrelevant, and it didn't seem related to real life. Or maybe you noticed hypocrisy in the leadership, and you faded away the moment that choice was left up to you whether to continue or not. Or maybe you grew up with no particular faith at all. And those two descriptions of religious life are prime reasons why you're not particularly interested in any faith. Well, whatever background you're from, you're welcome here. You're welcome because we're all on the journey here. We like to say faith is a a journey, not a guilt trip, right? We have that on our labels. And by your presence with us this weekend, I'm guessing that you are at least open to taking one step forward in your journey towards God and growing in your spiritual life. Good for you. That is a phenomenal thing. A lot of people don't take that seriously. But here's the question raised by Michael Stipe for our consideration tonight. Would it necessarily be a bad thing if Christians lost their religion? That is, if all the Christians in the world who consider themselves religious decide tomorrow we're going to lose the whole thing, would that be a bad thing or a positive one? (laughs) From a lot of the world's perspective, that'd be extremely positive. And the question is, how about from God's perspective? Well, tonight I'm going to level with you, and you might be surprised to hear this admitted in a Christian church, but Jesus himself was no fan of religion. In fact, throughout his ministry on earth, God's son spent a lot of time tangling with the religious elite of his day, just kind of criticizing their leaders for the small, hollow, and soulless system they had shrunken real faith down into. Our text for tonight is in Matthew chapter 23. I want to invite you to take your pew Bibles, or maybe you brought your Bible with you. We have them in the pews. Would you pass them down? They should be in the corners there. We've also printed it in your bulletin. And Matthew 23 is really... Jesus' most pointed teaching in which he essentially invites his followers to lose their religion or at least ditch the dead and legalistic aspects of their faith and step into the wide open life of love that God intends for people to enjoy. Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read the first 12 verses together and I'll read from the NIV. That's the left column in the Pew Bible, so I do like the heading of the message paraphrase, religious fashion shows. Start with verse 1. Left-hand column. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. Now, phylacteries, don't get stumbled there. You're like, holy, S-A-T word. No, all right? Phylacteries were little leather boxes that actually contained scripture verses. They didn't have Bibles like this. That actually the religious Jews wore on their foreheads. They bound them around their arm, if you can imagine, tied it to show how religious they were. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They're showing off. They love the place of honor at banquets. In the most important seats in the synagogue, they love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. But you, you are not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. Verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus ends his warning to religious people with a call to humility, which is kind of ironic. Because humility is not one of the qualities one typically associates with religious people. You notice on our list, 
legalistic, holy, confining rules, humility. Not really there. <laughs> to the average person, most religious people come off as proud and arrogant and often just flat out strange. <laughs> There's a guy by the name of John Orberg, and he wrote a book in, entitled um, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. <laughs> And Ortberg's actually the pastor of a Christian church out in California. And in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, which I highly recommend, he tells a story of a guy in his congregation named Hank. And he's like, Hank is the crankiest man you've ever met. <laughs> he's like, he doesn't smile easily. And when he does, the smile has a cruel edge to it. He, he always is at someone else's expense. This guy has been in their church 15 years. And he's had a knack. He has a knack for discovering just islands of bad news and oceans of happiness. It's like he has a spiritual gift of criticism. You know anybody like that? He says, Hank rarely affirms anyone, and he operates on the assumption that actually if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head. So he says he has this ministry of like cranial downsizing, just to make sure everyone stays humble, okay? But his native tongue was complaint. He did a lot of complaining, but he never missed a Sunday. (laughs) Much to Ortberg's chagrin. He was there week after week, listening to the sermons, open Bible, taking notes, reading the Bible, singing in the choir, but he was, in a word, one of the most joyless men you've ever met. He was actually a huge critic of the music in their church. He said, it's too loud. And he'd tell the staff, the ushers, the sound guy, and when that didn't work, he actually started telling the visitors to the church. Ortberg says the new people would walk in and he'd be like, the music here is terrible. It's too loud, you won't be able to hear yourself think. So Ortberg says they finally had to take Hank aside and say, look, you can complain to your you know, two friends, but not to our visitors. And that was the end of it, he thought, until a few weeks later when his secretary buzzed him in his office. And said, uh, Pastor Orberg, there's an agent from OSHA who's here to see you. Now, you know what OSHA is? Occupational Safety and Health Administration, right? Safety in the workplace. And the official walked in and he said, "Uh, I'm I'm actually here to uh, investigate a complaint. And as Orberg tried to figure out who on his staff, on the church staff, would call OSHA over a church problem, the OSHA guy began to talk about decibel level volumes of an airport level or rock concert. And Orberg said, wait, excuse me, are you, are you sure someone on my staff called you? And he said, no, 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 if anyone calls, whether or not they're on, on, they work here, we're obligated to investigate. And then it dawned on him. Hank had called OSHA and said, the music at my church is too loud. It's dangerously loud. And they had sent a federal agent to investigate. Now, by this time, he said the entire church staff was gathering around to find out what this bust was all about. And, and Orber was like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make light of this, but nothing like this has ever happened around here before. To which the OSHA guy said, don't apologize. Do you have any idea how much ridicule I faced around my office since everyone discovered I was going out to bust the church? So can you imagine? This guy's joylessness sometimes ended in comedy, but it often produced sadness. His children didn't know him. His son actually had a wonderful story about how he had met his wife at a dance, but he never told his father because Hank did not approve of dancing. Hank couldn't effectively love his wife or his children or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor and kind of a casual contempt for those whose accents or skin pigment differed from his own. In whatever capacity he might once have had for joy or wonder or gratitude, all the things that make life worth living, all those qualities had somehow atrophied. He critiqued and judged and complained, and every year, Ortberg writes, his soul got a little bit smaller, which leads to a question. How can a man or any woman who professes to be a follower of Jesus, who goes to church religiously, studies the Bible, gives money, and is by all appearances devout and zealous about their faith, somehow end up, after decades of life in a church, with a spirit that is curdled? with a spirit that has deflated and spoils everything it touches, with a heart that has not enlarged but has actually grown smaller. Well, 
It's entirely possible, says Jesus. And it's quite natural for many of us prone to boundary marker religion. That is, the goal of the Christian life that you guys know is to become more like Jesus Christ. That's why we gather, to grow more and more into the footsteps of Jesus, our master. But the great danger arises when we don't experience authentic transformation on the inside that will settle for what might be called pseudo-transformation. <laughs> we know as Christians we're called to you know, be, come out and be separate, that our faith, can, you know, commitment to Christ should somehow make us different. But here's the deal. If you are not increasingly marked by greater and greater amounts of love, joy, compassion, peace, patience, kindness, all the essential fruits of God's spirit, the danger is that you'll inevitably look for substitute ways of distinguishing yourself from those who are not Christians. And that deep pattern is almost inescapable for religious people. If we don't become changed from the inside out, our spirits and hearts kind of enlarging to what God's doing inside of us, we'll be tempted to find external methods to satisfy our need to feel that we're different from those outside the faith. And that's exactly what happened with the Pharisees, the uber-religious leaders of Judaism who Jesus confronts here in Matthew 23. They focused on the externals or the religious boundary markers that they used to measure just how spiritual they were and how ungodly the rest of the religious outsiders were. Boundary markers. That's probably one way to tell if your focus is more on religion than a real spiritual relationship with the living God. It's an almost universal truth. Groups have a tendency to be exclusive. Insiders want to separate themselves from outsiders. So they adopt what might be called identity or boundary markers. These are highly visible, relatively superficial practices. They're matters of like vocabulary, how you talk or, or dress or style, whose purpose is to distinguish between those inside and who those are on the outside of the club. You see this all the time, not just in church. I want you to imagine um, you're driving through San Francisco. You're, it's in the 1960s. You're driving through the Haight-Asbury district, right? You come to a stoplight, and a Volkswagen van pulls up next to you. It's plastered with a peace sign and a Make Love Not War bumper sticker. And the gal behind the wheel has long hair. She's wearing a tie-dye granny glasses. You know you're driving next to a what? Hippie. Hippie, right, okay? Yes, boundary marker. They, they communicate what they're about by what they wear, how they look. If this were the 80s or 90s, fast forward a couple decades, you rolled up next to a, you know, a BMW, with a driver wearing Gucci shoes, a Rolex wash, you know, moose hair, you know, nibbling on a piece of brie, you'd know that you were driving next to, what? Yeah, Michael Coyle. <laughs> Sorry, Mike's one of our small group leaders here. I, I privately envy his style. You get the point. Boundary markers. External IDs that all sorts of groups use to distinguish who's in the fraternity or sorority and who's out. Bikers are notorious for this. They use color, fabric, and skin ornamentation to send a message, right? Black leather and tattoos says, you're one of us. You're in the club. Now, same thing with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. When he talks about they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long, what, he is, what he's saying is literally the people who were most devout were seen as the spiritual leaders. They attempted to literally obey the Old Testament command where God says in Deuteronomy, fix these words of mine in your hearts and your minds. Bind them to your foreheads. And they said, let's do it literally. So I want you to imagine, get a rubber band, fasten the Bible to your forehead, okay? These were actually much smaller boxes, okay? Much smaller. But this is what they did. And they made their phylactery boxes wide. They widened them so people would see, look how much knowledge I have. Look how close I am to God. Not bad, huh? I mean, we laugh at that, but they actually elongated the tassels that they had on the four corners of their sleeves. That was to show, it was supposed to be a reminder to, to holiness. But he, Jesus says, 
you guys are extending this as a display of your piety to gain the admiration of people. A modern-day equivalent might be someone, you know, who wears a WWJD bracelet. No offense if you have one, okay? But it's a way of marking yourself. Or maybe you have, you know, an overstuffed, you know, mega-life, you know, study Bible, you know, with all the maps and stuff. And you got all the bulletins, shows, you know, where you've been, okay? And you can quote from it really well. It makes a nice, and it makes a nice little club, too. And, uh, you know, maybe you have a little fish emblem on the bumper of your car. Boundary markers. External identifiers that say, I'm in the God club, <laughs> But for really religious first century Jews, the even bigger boundary marker were things like, and this is where it gets strange, dietary laws, circumcision, <laughs> and Sabbath keeping. You ever wonder why those three practices seem to come up again and again in the New Testament? If you start to read the Bible for the first time, you won't get far until you think like, enough with this circumcision thing already. What's the deal? Uh, who cares what you eat or what you don't eat? Why, why do they go crazy over the Sabbath? You can't do any work. All right, take a day off. Why were these issues so important to the religious elite of Jesus' day? Because this was the black leather and tattoos of the Pharisees. These were the highly visible, relatively superficial practices that allowed them to distinguish who was inside and who was outside the family of God. Let's take the example of the Sabbath, or Saturday if you're Jewish, Sunday if you're Christian, the Lord's Day, all right? Now, this dates all the way back to the earliest writing in the Old Testament, actually, to the book of Exodus, where God said to Moses, he said, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days a week are set apart for your daily duties and regular work, but the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to the Lord, your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any kind of work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Then he rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Now, most people here, maybe you recognize this command as part of the Ten Commandments. Yes, or the law. That's what the law is called, what that God had given Moses to teach the Jewish people. So the law recognized this command as a prohibited work on the Sabbath, and that was the letter of the law. But you'll notice that the purpose of the Sabbath was to do what, actually? It was to rest and to worship God. That is, to enter into the holy rhythms of working and resting, just as God had ordained when he first made creation and rested on the seventh day. It was for man's well-being, not a restriction, but a gift so that he could actually be rest and be recreated. That's where we get the word recreation from. It's recreation. We rest and are physically, emotionally, and spiritually recreated. And in so doing, we imitate and honor God. So it was a gift, a blessing from God meant to enhance our life. Take time off from work, slow down, reconnect with me. Enter into my rhythms of physical labor and spiritual renewal. But somehow along the line, through years of religious observance... The Pharisees had lost the spirit of the law and began rigidly demanding that the letter be obeyed, or at least their interpretation of it. See, in the first century, here's the deal. You've heard the word rabbi. A rabbi's job was essentially to be a teaching pastor, (laughs) a teacher of the law. That's why Jesus says in verse 2 of Matthew 23, he says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. The role of a rabbi in a religious community was to study the law and meditate on it, discuss and pray, and then go about helping people in the community understand what God was saying to them and how they could live it out in their lives. So, every teacher of the law, a rabbi, took this Sabbath command in Exodus, and they said, now what does that mean not to work? And then they added their commentary or interpretation to it. 
They're like, well, God prohibits work. Well, what is work? So one rabbi might say, well, walking is work. I mean, you can start sweating, right? So you can walk only so far on the Sabbath, say a quarter mile, but no farther. Beyond that, it's sin. <laughs> Actually, in, if you did, that would, be, that would be a violation of Sabbath. It would, can be considered work. But another rabbi might permit you to walk a mile, but I forbid you another action like combing your hair because it's too strenuous. Different rabbis had different sets of rules, which were really man-made interpretations and expansions on what God originally said. And those interpretations of the law were called the rabbis, anyone? Yoke. Can you say yoke? Yoke. Not like an egg yoke, Y-O-L-K, but like the yoke an oxen would wear, Y-O-K-E. So if you followed, let's say, you know, Rabbi Mike, you would say, I wear the yoke of Rabbi Mike Leahy. And obviously, the more rules and restrictions that a religious leader added to God's law, the heavier his particular yoke would seem. And then along comes this other rabbi, a young upstart from Nazareth, who said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light, not heavy. And this is where the conflict started. Watch. Why don't you keep your finger in Matthew 23? We're going to be in Matthew a lot tonight. And flip back to Matthew chapter 12. This is one of the key boundary marker disputes between Jesus and the Pharisees. I want to read the message paraphrase to get the gist of this. But this is essential. This is great here. Um, You're really going to get a sense of why there was a conflict here. It says, One Sabbath, Jesus was strolling with his disciples through a field of ripe grain. Hungry, the disciples were pulling off the heads of the grain and munching on them. Some Pharisees reported them to Jesus. Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath rules. Jesus said, really? Didn't you ever read what David and his companions did when they were hungry? How they entered the sanctuary and ate fresh bread off the altar? Bread that no one but priests were allowed to eat? And didn't you ever read in God's law that priests carrying out their temple duties break Sabbath rules all the time and it's not held against them? Basically, Jesus talks about an Old Testament story. And he says in verse 6, check this out, there is far more at stake here than religion. If you had any idea what this scripture meant... I prefer a flexible heart to an inflexible ritual. You wouldn't be nitpicking like this. The Son of Man is no lackey to the Sabbath. He's in charge. Check this out. When it came to observing the Sabbath, the Pharisees had 39 categories of actions that they forbid on the Sabbath. No walking, no combing your hair, no sometimes modern-day Orthodox rabbis, no flipping on the lights. And you better get your food by Friday sundown, because if you don't, you can't prepare anything. No cooking, that'd be work. You have to go hungry. So when they spy Jesus and his, this rabbi and his disciples who follow the yoke of Jesus, picking wheat and they're rubbing it with their hands, they cry, foul! <laughs> they're, you're technically harvesting, according to the Pharisees. But as the text says, Jesus and the disciples were picking grain because they were what? Hungry. Not because they wanted to, you know, pick grain and, like, sell it for a profit. Like, let's get an extra work day in there. No, they weren't laboring on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees could not and did not want to see beyond the law's technicalities. Their religion was about, every way, observing the rules down to the minutiae. And they had no room in their heart for compassion or for human need. And they were determined to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. So Jesus just hits them head on and calls out their religious boundary marker. He says, there's far more at stake here than religion. If you had any idea what the scripture meant, I prefer a flexible heart to an inflexible ritual, you wouldn't be nitpicking like this. 
The Son of Man is no lackey to the Sabbath. He's in charge. The NIV renders it, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you knew what that meant, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And when Jesus calls himself Lord of the Sabbath, what he's doing is claiming to be greater than the law and actually above the law. And the Pharisees and religious people everywhere, that's heresy. You broke the rules. They didn't recognize that Jesus, the divine Son of God, had actually created the Sabbath. It was actually his idea back in Exodus 20. The creator is always greater than the creation, and Jesus had the authority to overrule their man-made rules and regulations, and this fired them up. See, if you're religious, in the rules-bound sense of the word, nothing fires you up more than when someone kicks over your boundary marker. Now watch, because this gets comical. Keep reading at verse 9 of Matthew 12. It's like ding, ding, round two of the Sabbath skirmish. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? And he said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Religious folks don't like it when you kick over their boundary marker, when you mess with their system. And the Pharisees' Sabbath rules said that people could be helped on the Lord's Day only if their lives were in danger. So when they point to this poor guy with the shriveled hand, they're trying to bait Jesus, asking him if he's going to break the rules. And basically, Jesus pulls their pants down in public. He exposes their inner lack of mercy and compassion for everyone. See, he said, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Of course it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. To heal? Folks, any law that places man-made rules or tradition above human need is not true religion. It is demonic. It is spiritual blindness. These religious leaders were so concerned about Jesus breaking one of their boundary markers that they didn't care about this man's crippling. He was just a fly in the ointment, a crippled nuisance, you know, in their perfectly crafted and expertly observed system. And when Jesus says, in essence, no, the fly counts, he's a human being. He's a child of God, someone made in my Father's image. And he needs my help. It grinded their gears. It sent the machinery flying and their blood Boiling. You can't knock over a boundary marker like that. Don't mess with my religious, capital R, system. And of course, ironically, the confrontation ends with this incredible line in verse 14. But the Pharisees, masters of the Bible, went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Let's let that hang there a moment. Because that's where man-made religion ultimately takes you. Violence. External perfection and inner corruption. All spit and polish as you keep your rules and try to force others to abide by them in violence on the inside. A poverty of heart. A poisoning of the soul. And the Pharisees went out. The, the experts in the law, the, the religious elite, went out and plotted how they might kill God. Do you get this? Man-made religion, friends, is the enemy of God. The system is rigged, and your intuitions are right, and you should run for the hills when you see it coming. 
Jesus exposes its corrupting effects for us right here. And I mean, if I were to diagram this thing on the board, if you think about it, he's like, this is how religion works. (laughs) You got it. It's not about a relationship. It is about a set of rules in every way. The rules that we call in the Old Testament. Let me grab a green marker here. I've got black. It's called the law, and there are rules that you need to keep, right? We all know that. We've kind of gone over it. It communicates that people who are finding their way back to God is primarily about how they keep their noses clean. Have you led a good life, a religious life, where hopefully the good outweighs the bad? Because if you take that seriously, you'll focus most of your time and energies on performance and effort. How many of you feel tired in your religious life, in your spiritual life? This is a prime indicator, actually, if you're being religious or if you're being spiritual. How tiring and exhausting is this? Have, have I, am I doing good enough? Is God finally going to favor me and notice me? If religion feels heavy or fear-based and guilt-driven to you, there's a reason. It is. It's all about your personal effort. Can you get God's attention? Will he notice for all the ways you're keeping all the rules and jumping through all the moral hoops set out for you? And if you just try harder, you might be able to earn your way into God's good graces and hopefully into heaven. In the REM song, this is what Michael Stipe is at wit's end. He's more than ready to lose his religion because he's doubtful of his ability to keep up. He's like, that's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. I'm losing my religion because I'm trying to keep up with you and I don't know if I can do it. Like a hurt, lost, and blinded fool. Fool. No, no, I've, I've said too much. Do you see? The effects of religious striving, it results in competition. Why at church, so many often times, we kind of rank ourselves like an Olympic swimmer. Like, I think I'm probably at an eight, but I know Eric is at like a seven, so I'm ahead. We like to compare. It makes us feel better. Well, you know, I know. I saw it. Glenn drank a beer. I never would. <laughs> Control your appetites. That's what God wants. Live a morally scrupulous, externally pure life. Avoid four-letter words. That's, someone's, that's, that's some people's version of being spiritual. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do, Right? And what's more, you need to start reading the right books, learning the insider language and dressing differently. And in people taking a first step to back to God, do you know what that creates? Just a total sense of futility. Like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to do this because I'm trying to keep up with you and I don't know if I can. No wonder Jesus calls the Pharisees literally in verse 16. He says, woe to you blind guys, you blind fools, like a hurt, lost, and blinded fool. Because their emphasis was on human effort to perfect the externals. And that is insidious. This is where it gets really ugly. Because you know what this kind of human effort leads you to? One of two places. It will take your spirit to a place of either pride. Look at me. I think I'm doing it. I can do this. Or futility. There's no way I can do this. (laughs) I'm actually doing this thing. I am pretty good. I haven't done this. I've avoided that. I've memorized my Bible. I've read the right books. I listened to 99.1. Hmm. (laughs) Why can't Chris be more like me? (laughs) Religious pride is the cancer of the soul. Or if you're more like me, honestly, I, I don't go to a place of pride. I go to a place of futility. My life is more uneven than straight and narrow. I don't, I'm not that deceived. And it takes you to a place of futility. You know, it's like maybe you're here tonight and you're like, good, this is good news for me. Because my life is a wreck. I'm always blowing it. And if this thing, this God accepting me is based on my performance, I'm done. I'm not even a contender. I am in last place. I've blown relationships. I'm divorced, or, or I've got a temper. I lose my cool. I flip. I, flip. I drop the F-bomb in the minivan on the way to church. 
In terms of keeping the law, if the competition is based on my effort or performance so far, God wouldn't even let me to the starting line. And that crippling of the soul, my friends, leads to one place. <laughs> Judgment. Either someone's going to get a black eye, and you're either going to punch yourself if it's futility, or if it's pride, guess what? Come on over. Somebody else. Someone's going to get the hammer. If you go to a place and say, I can't fulfill religious obligations, God's going to be mad at me, you're going to beat yourself up. Anyone here familiar with that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, amen. <laughs> And if you do a decent job, if you're like, no, I'm a pretty good rule keeper, you even add a little boundary markers of your own along the way, guess what? You turn the laser at others, to the weak, to the inconsistent, to those who aren't keeping up. Instead of being yourself up, you beat them up because they aren't fulfilling your interpretation of what God requires. Judgment. Condemn others or beat yourself up. Either way, someone's going to get a black eye. And that's the beginning of the end because judgment, as the word implies, leads where? Death. Literal death. That's the end result of man-made religion or performance-based spirituality. Spiritual death. Death of your soul. Death of your spirit. Why? Because it's cut off from its creator, from life itself. The law can, the law can never give life. It can only make us aware of our acute need for it from an outside source. In Romans 3.20, the Apostle Paul notes this. He says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather... Through the law, we become conscious of sin. In other words, from the very beginning, it was never about following some rules in order to earn your way into the God club. It was about simply revealing how short we fall of his actual design for our lives. But when the law or man-made religion is what drives us, we receive our reward, death. The Pharisees and their followers literally practiced a dead religion in Jesus' mind. Dead to love. Futile. Self-centered attempts to make themselves acceptable to God and impress other people. And Paul puts it this way later in Romans 7.5. He says this. He says, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Think, think about fruit for death. That's an amazing, that would be a great name for a band. Fruit for death. <laughs> think about all of the fruits. Because it gives off fruits. Dead religion. That Jesus highlights here in Matthew 23. It's all the stuff that make people actually kind of squeamish when it comes to religion in the first place, right? So focus on the externals. One of the first ones is what? Hypocrisy. <laughs> Look at Matthew 23. I want you to keep your text open here. I won't go through all of this. But he says literally, do not do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. Everything they do is for men to see. In other words, he says, these guys just don't care about being holy. They just want to look holy in order to gain praise and admiration, and when we know the Bible, but you know what? It actually doesn't change your lives. Or we know our sin, but we try to cover over our failures. We become hypocrites. We have the appearance of life on the outside, but we're actually dead on the inside. If you skip to verses 27 and 28, look at this. This is amazing. Jesus gets pointed. He says this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. In other words, it's literal inner deadness. That's what hypocrisy is. It's spit and polish and holy talk on the outside. All the external boundary markers are in place. But the bigger issues, the matters of the heart, the things that rile, that bake God's potato, mercy to those in need. Justice to those who are oppressed faithfulness in spite of suffering are missing. Instead, behind the facade, you know. If you're religious, that's why we don't see it on here. It's not on our list. Lack of compassion. 
If you have a compassion deficit, <laughs> ding, 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 you know it's because you're practicing religion. Jesus says in verse 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says this, this is interesting. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, Jesus is like, you guys go to church and you tithe. You give money. You're big givers. 10% of everything, even your cooking spices. Wow. You've got it covered. But you refuse to give one minute of your time to helping those beneath you. This is the equivalent of the guy who's like, in our day, like on his way to liquid, sees like a mom struggling to change her tire on the side of the road and is like, I'm so sorry, I would love to help, but I am totally late for church. I'm sorry, Uh -uh. I'll pray for you. (laughs) External checklists are more important than inner compassion. Some of you know uh, the name Tony Campolo. He's a college professor, a preacher, and a spiritual provocateur. And one of his main grievances about the Christian church is how much Christians neglect the most important aspects of God's word. For instance, the poor. Did you know that Jesus, there are, there are over 2,000 verses about serving the poor alone, about sacrificing and giving your life for those who have little in our need, as were the hands and feet of Jesus. Yet for many Christians, that's not a front-burner issue. But there are certain things that are, like language. And so one time, at the graduation ceremony of a Christian college, Campolo got up to give the commencement address, and he said this. This is that a Christian college? He said, I have three things I'd like to say today. First, while you were sleeping last night, 30,000 kids died of starvation or diseases related to malnutrition. Second, most of you don't give a shit. What's worse is that many of you are more upset with the fact that I said shit than the fact that 30,000 kids died last night. He was not asked back to speak. (laughs) And to underscore the point, the college received over 100 letters of outrage from concerned Christians about his foul language, but not one letter about wanting to help serve the least and the last who he spoke of. You blind guides, Jesus yells in verse 24. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. (laughs) You miss. You look for the minutiae, but you miss the big nut. <laughs> you know that Pharisees actually strained their, their wine in case it, a, a gnat or an insect fall, fell into it because that was unclean. <laughs> in verse 15, Jesus says to those who follow dead religion, they're actually double damned. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. You're all about evangelism. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Do you wonder why they killed him? So how do you know? How do you know if you've misunderstood true spirituality and settled for man-made religion? Perhaps the most telling warning sign that Jesus highlights is spiritual weariness. Is your faith a joy? Would you say that? Or is it a burden? Because Jesus said you can literally tell whether your faith is authentic or not based on how heavy it feels, right? Look at verse 4. They tie up heavy loads, put them on men's shoulders, but they're not willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, if you're on the journey of faith, you're following God, how full is your backpack? Is it full of all sort of add-ons and man-made traditions or just the essentials? Because Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he literally invites us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my interpretation of God's law, upon you and learn from me. 
For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The yokes of the Pharisees were heavy and burdensome and deadening. It didn't lead to more life. It led to joyless, living death. So I'll ask again. Would it be such a bad thing if Christians were to lose their religion? I actually think not. (laughs) And I think Jesus might support that. See, Jesus was about a streamlined spirituality. Focusing on the essentials of the faith and what it means to really know God. Not know about him, but know him. What it really means to be connected to God on the inside. Because if you get your insides right, your heart, and God's spirit actually invades your spirit, everything else flows out of that. Jesus didn't invite us to be conformed to a religious subculture. That's not the invitation. But to be transformed into totally new creatures. That's what he gave life for. Instead of focusing on the boundaries, Jesus focused on the center, the heart of spiritual life. If you flip back, look at this. You don't even have to flip back. Look at Matthew chapter 22, right before this. You'll see that Jesus was challenged by one of the religious leaders to sum up what the law was all about. And Jesus' reply didn't include 29 categories or lists of rituals or traditions or moral minutiae. Rather, Jesus' response was simple. Love God, love people. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, in direct contrast to the the boundary marker system divided by the Pharisees, he named a fundamentally different way of identifying who are the true children of God. Do they love God, willing to sacrifice anything for him? And do they love the people who mean so much to him? That's true spirituality. And Jesus' early followers understood this clearly. The Apostle Paul, ex-Pharisee, he wrote to the church at Corinth about the significance of having his religious markers but lacking the center. He said, if I speak in um, the tongues of mortals and angels, I can talk a good game. But have not love, I am a what? Clanging gong or cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, I can tell you what's going to happen and, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. I am academic and I can scrupulous. If I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. John puts it even more bluntly in his first epistle. He says, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Knows God. But whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's not about rules, folks. It never was. It is about a relationship. It is about love. It's in a particular kind of love, God's love, which has a name all its own, and it's called grace. And this is the face of grace. Knowing God doesn't begin, folks. If you're here tonight, how do I know God? I don't even know where to begin. It doesn't begin with a focus on what you can do for him, but on what he's already done for you in sending his son Jesus to die as a sacrifice for your failures. When the religious leaders eventually made good on their plans to kill Jesus, they they did, they killed God. (laughs) The only person, Jesus, the only person who actually fulfilled God's law perfectly, in every detail, I want you to imagine that. In his 33 years on earth, Jesus loved his father perfectly, submitted his whole life to him, followed every command, and never gave in to religious posturing. He lived out of a heart filled with genuine mercy, authentic compassion for others, never had to fake it. He was filled with God's spirit and lived a life you and I never could. While we were over here traveling down this path, 
law. We're falling short. Judgment. Oh, gosh. This life has to be over. Death. The man who never blew it, who never sinned, perfect in every respect, steps in and absorbs the punishment, the judgment due us. And he actually dies in our place. And he did it out of love. Sheer love. It's called grace. God's scandalous kindness and compassion to people who don't deserve it. You can't earn your way back to God no matter how hard we try through our own religious striving, our attempts to live a good life, we fall short. And so God did what? He came down to us and laid down his life for us. And this changes everything when you think about it. Because if you look at religion and you look at grace-driven spirituality, it's almost like completely opposite. Where this one is all about the law and rules, this one is all about grace and a relationship. Everything falls under this banner. There is a God who loves you, who has always loved you, and has come down and given his life for yours. And he's done it so that you can now live for him. You can be accepted. Performance and effort, who's in, who's out? No, this is actually a little bit different. Grace talks about as is acceptance. (laughs) In other words, when you recognize there's nothing we can do, and actually we fall woefully short, but you are radically accepted as is. Just as you are, God wants to embrace you. If you'll simply admit that you can't do it. That actually I need God to do this for me. If you'll accept what Christ has done on your behalf, something amazing happens. God accepts you as is. Do you believe that? God accepts me right as I am tonight. If I didn't do one more thing for him, if I was knocked on my butt out of here, run over, I never had a chance to read the Bible, God accepts you as is. He is not angry with you. Some of you have entered with delusions that God is angry with you. He has literally brought heaven to earth to be with you and save you from judgment and a dead life. And that love is never changing. You can't do anything to earn it. You can only accept it. And when you do, when you accept what God has done for you in sending his, sacrificing his son Jesus through no merit of your own, but just by mercy, you are restored and reconnected to a relationship with the God who created you through the life, death, and resurrection of his beloved son. That's the good news, the gospel of grace. In his letter to the Romans, Paul puts it this way. He says, God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by a fractured human spirit, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Could it really be that easy? That to grasp onto God means that we have to just let go of all our vain attempts to measure up. There's got to be more. Now you know why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. And why religious people look suspiciously at grace unfiltered. 
Because this truth that only those who are honest about who they are and can admit their need for God, that's the key that opens the door to God's kingdom. Humility. This is what caused Jesus to make the scandalous remark if you flip one page over to Matthew 21, 31. He says, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Can you imagine Jesus saying this to the Pharisees, to the masters of the Torah who devoted their lives to the religious system? The message paraphrases, yes, and I tell you that crooks and whores are going to precede you into God's kingdom. John came to you showing you the right road and you turned up your noses at him, but the crooks and the whores believed him. Even when you saw their changed lives, you didn't care enough to change and believe him. In other words, Jesus says, when it's about grace, (laughs) when you dismantle the religious system and make it about grace, then it's the truly broken, those who've made a mess of their lives but are honest about it, who are closest to the kingdom. That's why he could say those with sexually broken past were welcome in God's family, and it's the reason you're welcome here tonight. You are accepted as is. You may be a million miles away from the religious subculture. You don't even know what I'm poking fun at. (laughs) But the crooks and the whores had turned and oriented themselves towards love. God has done this for me. For me? So you have an addiction to pornography. Here's the truth tonight. God accepts you as is and has come to help you. So you've been driven by greed and traded your family for your ministry or your career. The time is now. God has come to help reorient your life around the rule of love and he can fix your relationships and redeem the time you've lost. This is the great irony of Jesus' entire teaching here in Matthew, that the righteous of his day were more damaged by their righteousness than the sinners were by their sin. Brennan Manning wrote a fabulous book on the scandal of grace-driven spirituality. It's entitled The Ragamuffin Gospel. Anyone familiar with it? And in it he writes, The kingdom of God is not an exclusive, well-trimmed suburb with snobbish rules about who can live there. No. It is for a larger, homelier, less self-conscious cast of people who understand that they are sinners because they've experienced the yaw and pitch of moral struggle. These are the sinner guests invited by Jesus to closeness with him around the banquet table. It remains a startling story to those who never understand that the men and women who are truly filled with light and those who have gazed deeply into the darkness of their imperfect existence. As Morton Kelsey wrote, the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. When I go to church, I can leave my white hat at home and admit I have failed. God not only loves me as I am, but also knows me as I am. Because of this, I don't need to apply spiritual cosmetics to make myself presentable to him. I can accept ownership of my poverty and powerlessness and neediness and say, thank God. Because we are equally privileged but unentitled beggars at the door of God's mercy. And so you see, the fruits of grace are very different from the fruits of religion. This breeds hypocrisy, lack of compassion, judgment, all of that. That's what a man-made system does. But one that is birthed out of God's own genius bears very different fruit. When you really believe in your spirit tonight, even, that God accepts me as I am through grace, it goes to the opposite of pride and futility. 
it goes to humility. God accepts me. You can be honest about who you are. If God doesn't condemn you for what you've done, it's all forgiven. And he sees in you the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for you. You have nothing to prove. There is no longer any, no judgment. Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? All my life, people have looked sideways at me. I even thought felt the hot glares while I was walking in tonight. There is no judgment for you. God no longer judges you, and your sins and failures are no longer the truest thing about you in Jesus Christ. And because you're no longer judged, guess what happens when you look at other people? I have no judgment for you. (laughs) Instead, I am filled with love (laughs) and gratitude for what God has done for me. And when that takes over your heart, watch out. Because that's actually when your life actually starts to change. (laughs) Because you're no longer bench-pressing or laboring your way to obey God or fix your life on your own, but simply responding out of love and thankfulness to what His Spirit is now set free to do in you. And that leads to something quite the opposite. (laughs) Life. Real life. Life, as Jesus said, to the full. Not religious life, but true spirituality. When you put your trust in Jesus, He promises to send His Spirit to come dwell in you, and it brings joy. Not grimness of duty, but a delight in following God. Imagine a life that was guilt or shame free. Simple delight in what God has wiped clean and is now doing inside you as you open up more and more of your heart to his influence. Think about this. I want to close our time by reading Paul's description of this in Romans 8, verses 5 through 10. I want to invite you to turn with that. I won't have it up here on the slides. This is just amazing. Paul knew this better than anyone else. He considered himself the chief of what? Sinners. Because grace is real for me. He says this. He says, those who think they can do it on their own. I'll look at the message paraphrase. Verse 5. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them and find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. But attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God, and that person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. Verse 9, But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about, but for you who welcome him, in whom he now dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. And when God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. Amen? Amen. That's the difference between religion and spirituality, folks. Religion is small, about posturing and trying to measure up to some man-made expectations, but grace-driven spirituality is honest and it's huge. It starts and ends 
with humbly surrendering your life to Jesus and asking him to come fill and change you and open you up to real life, his life lived out through you. Do you know what the strongest argument for Christianity is? For the truth of it? Christians, when they're drawing life from God. Do you know what the strongest argument against Christianity is? Also Christians, when they become religious, exclusive, self-righteous, and complacent. This is an invitation to you tonight to lose your religion and step into a relationship of grace. And trust in Christ makes it possible. Have you done that? Have you done that? Who has done that? Raise your hand if you've done that. Could you commit your life to that if you haven't? You could do that tonight as we bow our heads together and pray. Lord, we know we aren't worthy, that every one of us has fallen short. We're all in the same boat here. That's why you taught us never to elevate ourselves or judge one another, Lord. And we thank you that there is no more judgment for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. There is no more threat of death, of dead living, of empty or hollow practices that lead nowhere. There's just life, eternal life. The life of your son, readily available to invade our life and heal it and fix it and transform it from the inside out. Thank you for grace, Lord. Thank you for grace.